You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thursday the 5th of January, after a gloomy start here in TW11, it is brightening up somewhat uh, pictures are a little bit bleaker on the racing news front it it has to be said yes there's still the fallout from the whip rule revision more of which later in the program with world horse welfare chief executive roly owers uh, we've got the tolworth hurdle to look forward to at sandown park on saturday i'll be talking to jamie snowden who had a significant result in the Chalo hurdle last week and some really interesting thoughts about some of his stable stars later in the show but the somewhat gloomy news though not entirely unexpected is that as reported by scott burton in last night's racing post racecourse attendance in britain uh, seems to have dipped below five million for the first time in more than 25 years Uh, that is in spite of what we anticipate to be some quite encouraging news coming from the christmas and new year period but those figures as yet not consolidated in a moment we'll be talking to our friend here on the podcast chief executive of the racecourse association david armstrong but first of all rishi passad what's happening here I think it was pretty obvious that given all the circumstances economically uh, within the sport of racing, etc., that race course attendances, you could have predicted the dip in it. Um, there are some worrying individual elements of the fact that in comparison to 2019, the figures for 2022 are low. You point out that the Christmas period was vibrant. Yes, it was. And that may actually, when the final statistics for 2022 are collated, that might actually boost the end of year results. But the overall figures from 2019 in comparison to 2022, it's significantly down, Nick. And and more importantly, the big days, the meetings that attracted uh, 8,000 or more racegoers. For example, in 2019, there were 158 meetings that attracted 8,000 or more racegoers. In 2022, that number fell to 120. Uh, Obviously, the main issue is the economic climate and value for money. And racecourses, perhaps at the moment, are suffering on both both factors. Obviously, value for money is a big question mark, considering how much people pay to go racing, considering what it costs for food and drink, etc., at the racecourse, um, in comparison to some of the other sports and some of the other leisure activities that people can attend. But of course, there are there are number of people across the country who are having a squeeze on their leisure spending. And that is significant when you consider that our sport is obviously a leisure industry, an entertainment industry. And so it is a worrying time for the sport. Let's try and read between these figures a little bit in the company of David Armstrong, Chief Executive of the Racecourse Association, to whom we often turn at times like this. Um, David, how do you how do you interpret this data? Well, I think the data that came out yesterday demonstrated the trend that had been actually building for a few months during 2022. Sort of seeing us in that sort of 12, 13% down sort of range 
Um, we've obviously had some factors that haven't helped in terms of attendance numbers, such as the the, the royal funeral and, of course, quite a number of abandonments uh, in the in the sort of November December period due to uh, frozen ground. So we will have lost some crowd numbers that way as well. But swings and roundabouts, you have things that happen most years, so that's not in itself an explanation. What we have seen is a very positive uh, Christmas period with strong attendances at many, many meetings across the country. And although we don't have the full consolidated figures yet, I think that was very a very positive development. Okay, so can you rationalise that? You're somebody experienced not just in racing, but in all sport. You've run rugby, you've run netball. Um, what makes people go at, at Christmas, uh, as, they, as they always have done, but not turn up for the rest of the year? Well, that's a good question, and of course we have seen decent attendances at major festivals throughout the year as well. So I think it's, it, there's a difference between those major events, some of which of course happen at Christmas, where there's a, a sort of a family get-together, you know, a lot of the people who come on, for example, uh, Boxing Day or New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, are there as part of a family tradition and a family group, and that's, and that's fantastic. What we have to do is to make it racing relevant for them throughout the year. And that's, you know, whether that's midweek or weekends, we have to work hard on developing that interest group um, for people who come once, get them to come twice. People who came once three years ago, get them to come back. Give them reasons, give them narrative, give them hooks to get them back at the race course. I mean, we've, we've been saying this for, for years. I remember that being one of the very first addresses I ever heard Rod Street give when Racing for Change started back in 2009, 2010. Exactly those words, I think, that you've just that you've just uttered. And I'm sure we've been trying very hard ever since. It doesn't necessarily look to be working in, in terms of the data. Uh, I, I just ask you, can, can we get people to, to attend a relatively minor sporting day in the middle of the week anymore? Or is that sort of day-to-day fan base just a thing of the past? Well, I think the day-to-day fan base probably still exists, but I don't think it necessarily exists in the numbers that it used to. And we have to be realistic about where our targets might be in terms of bringing fans back to the sport. I think we have to start with the showpiece of the sport, the weekends, the Saturdays, the big festivals, big fixtures. And, that, and that's working quite well, especially especially in hospitality, actually. Um whether there's a, an under, you know, a, a, if you like, an underscore of that with a strong midweek crowd or not, I think time will tell. But what we mustn't do is get too anxious in light of the, the sort of serious economic conditions that everyone's facing, including all race course. <clears throat> you know, the, the cost of living crisis, the impact on household budgets is enormous. And therefore, the availability of disposable income to spend on sporting events, including racing, is much less. And other sports and other attractions are going through exactly the same issues as us. Um, do you have any? Do you have any um, data or, or, or evidence from from other sports that you can share with us to give us a bit of context? Well, actually, uh, uh, you mentioned Rod earlier, and I, I, I haven't got to my fingertips right at the moment. But Rod sent Rod a, a report that uh, was produced for us um, uh, towards the end of last year that looked at the impact on other sports and other events and things like museums and those sort of attractions as well. And so I'm sure he would be happy to, to come on and talk to you about that. But the, uh, what that tended to show is we're sort of middle of the table, really. Uh, in terms of other sports and um, and in particular other attractions like you know leisure facilities and uh, theatre and museums, we're probably doing better than them. So it's we're middle of the road. There's an awful lot of work to do, but we must recognise the impact of the economic recession.
All right, David, uh, you're a BHA board member. Um, are you happy with the revisions to the WIT rules? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that to my much more qualified colleagues who've been talking on your show already and, and let them talk about that. All right, nicely dodged. Thanks, David. Cheers. All right, that was um, Racecourse Association Chief Executive David Armstrong um, reacting to the news that average attendance for the 12 months up to the end of November declined by 13.9% compared to the same period in 2019. It's a bit more nuanced, though, isn't it, Rishi, listening to that than simply the cost of living crisis? It's about people wanting to turn up to certain fixtures and really not wanting to turn up to the rest. The point that you made, Nick, about uh, midweek meetings, I think, is becoming more significant because the midweek meetings represent the core audience of the sport, those people who are racing fans through and through. And I do believe that the figures indicate that that number is dwindling. David, Ar David Armstrong acknowledges that a lot of people in the sport are aware that that core number is dwindling. And something has to be done about that. Now, I, I've been a huge advocate for more people doing doing more to promote the sport amongst young people. Um, unfortunately, the, the, it's, it's only going in one direction at the moment. Midweek attendances are down, you know, at, but also I know you point out about the big days, but the big day numbers are down as well. You know, the, the figure I mentioned about 158 meetings, which grew, drew attendances for 8,000 or more, that, that's down to 120. Um, Rishi, if you are part of racing's remaining core fan base and you're the sort of person who listens to this podcast, reads the Racing Post, watches... Um, Racing TV, Sky Sports Racing. Uh, uh, there's so much racing on ITV now as well. 120 days next year, which is which is fantastic. But you are so well served sitting in your armchair at home. Where's the incentive to go racing? Um, we've all we've discussed this before. You are probably better catered for it than in a sense it deserves at the moment because in comparison to many other sports or many other uh, leisure activities, racing has, as you mentioned. Racing TV, Sky Sports Racing, ITV, it's covered, even covered on five live radio. You know, there's, there's a, a vast amount of coverage of our sport in comparison to the popularity of it. You talk about the dwindling attendances. Um, there is the, the correlation sometimes I feel racing remains very lucky to have when you consider what other sports get for their popularity. We ought to be utilizing that right now, but I don't think we are. I don't think there's enough being done uh, across the board in racing to encourage people to experience the race day once we're there, once we're on television, when we have the opportunity to broadcast to people, to encourage them to come racing. More can be done in, in that respect. Because without that, we're not creating the core audience. We're basically saying, this is a really good day out. It's, it's in comparison. You can, your, your leisure pound that you spend, you, you can go to a football match, you can go to a cricket match. I ha um, my daughter came racing with me uh, at Christmas time. And when I was driving back in the car with her and I asked her what were the things that she enjoyed and what would make a great day at the races for her. And she said, meeting jockeys, um, having the chance that obviously she, she wanted to meet Rachel Blackmore. Um, but also, you know, she said having nice things to do at the races. And unfortunately, she didn't have enough nice things to do at the races. So it's just the simple things about making the race day experience such a good one for all ages that they want to return to that experience and have that experience again and again and again.
All right, now transitioning to to the yesterday's major talking point, the revised WIP rules. David Armstrong, in spite of being a BHA board member, not really wanting to to commit at the end of the interview there, leaving that to David Jones, who spoke at length on this podcast yesterday, and to the BHA chair, Joe Somarez-Smith. Uh, Rishi, in a moment, we'll just hear from Roly as the chief executive of World Horse Welfare, who was on the steering group. Just a, a quick a quick summary from your perspective of, of your view on the revisions. A good thing or not? I think ultimately it is a good thing, Nick, because what we didn't want were, was the disconnect between what the jockeys felt and uh, they had gone through the thought process of what the changes of the forehand to the backhand meant. Uh, and then we could have ended up further down the line. You know, there was talks of strikes, etc. Who knows? But I think the fact is that Overall, it's good that we've got to the position that we've got. We've prevented going th- those changes going through that would have perhaps not satisfied enough of the riders. Um, remaining in the forehand is obviously a positive for the majority of jockeys. Most of the jockeys that I can, the opinions that I canvassed after the re- the review came through, uh, they felt that being able to use it in the forehand was uh, a prerequisite. Um, and, and, and they felt kinder for the horse in terms of where you strike them because in, it, less danger of striking them in the wrong place in the forehand. So that's a positive that that's remained. Um, the reduction of the number of uh, strikes on the flat down to six uh, from seven and, and jumps from seven from eight. I think that hopefully will... See, I, I, when I'm saying this, I'm saying this under the guise of the fact that I know that RSBCA, um, people from horse welfare will say it's it's for optics but the optics are important um you know, you know even when you're correlating what we've just been talking about about race course attendances and whip use there is there is a correlation there because the popularity of the sport has to remain strong what we can't do is is not have positive optics on the sport so when people say it's just for optics not for welfare well we know that the welfare is already there because the whip is not something that hurts horses and the optics hopefully will help people understand or people uh, see the sport in a slightly more positive light so i i think overall it's good um but i think the process is something that um we have to review and have to have a proper look at because there has been some uh, it's hard to find exactly what went wrong because it's, it's just inferences from the review, the recommendations, um, you know, having Tom Scudamore and PJ McDonald was obviously seen as a huge positive, but somehow the communication can't have been filtered properly or filtered in a way that um, allowed the jockeys as an overall body to understand the you know the pros and cons of what was coming their way because obviously we've now ended up with just weeks before the the betting in period and the the last minute changes have come in so i think the overall process has to have has to have some sort of review as to how we ended up in this position but i'm i'm hoping that the ultimate uh, changes that have come now to the whip rules and the whip usage has will will settle um, and I think overall, it is positive to allow the forehand to continue and for the strikes to come down further. And of course, also the the penalties remaining significant for the riders in breach of those in, in breach of those rules. Yeah, well, the penalties now are becoming yet more significant because they've gone up quite significantly uh, since the the revision of the rules. Well, as you know, and if I haven't made it abundantly clear already, then uh, I make it abundantly clear again. I was on the steering group that initially sent forward some recommendations for the consideration of the BHA board 
um, recommendations, which they ratified and then they revised yesterday. Now, there were people of vastly differing opinions on future use of the whip for encouragement on that group. I've made my position fairly clear. I think it would be fair to say that Roly Ears, who's the chief executive of World Horse Welfare, has a different position. But um, we cohabited quite happily for quite a long time, um, Roly, on, on, on this. And uh, I'd be interested to know your thoughts on, on the revisions that were, were made yesterday. Morning, Nick, and yeah, thank you. I mean, obviously, uh, our position in terms of uh, a significant preference or a desire to move remove the whip for encouragement is well known. But as you said, there was some dissonance in the group, but we move forward to try and get to uh, a, a better position. And I think that the process that went through was a very considered one with different opinions. Uh, and it seems extraordinary that, you know, after that considered process and the record, 20 recommendations are published in July, that the 11th hour changes are made and i and i think there's it's it, it's we are utterly dismayed by it uh not is because it built trust i believe in the process that we went through and that trust has now been significantly eroded in what way well, I think when we talk about social license, when we talk about public exceptions of horse sport, you talk about, you know, being able to, uh, for the public to trust that the regulator is going to do the right thing. And it just, this smacks of not doing the right thing. If you bring through a, a year-long process, with 20 recommendations, and one of those recommendations has changed at the 11th hour. And, you know, we said at the time that it would be up to racing to be able to justify the changes uh, to, to the to the public at large that they are in the interest of equine welfare and i find it very difficult to see how they can do that now let me just get this straight even though you're someone who believes that the whip should be discontinued for encouragement that's your personal belief it doesn't make you any happier that the count has come down from eight to seven necessarily there's a lot of discussion during the group about there, there is no science to the count. Um, and yes, in one level, you could say that that is a step in the right direction. But the group had a considered discussion around that and it was decided against it. So I, I find it very difficult to understand the logic of the process that's gone through, um, especially given the time that the, that's con- since the recommendations have been uh, made last July and then such a late hour for, for changes to be made. I, I think, it, yeah, it, we, are, we think it's deeply unfortunate and doesn't reflect well on racing at all. Rolio is the Chief Executive of World Horse Welfare. Uh, I mean, there is clearly going to be, until this settles down, Rishi, an awful lot of people from all sides of this debate that are that are not satisfied with the with the process. It's got interesting thoughts there from Rolioers. I think one of the one of the things that people in in the sport who love racing and who feel protective and defensive of racing, they keep saying that you know there are that there's a very small number of people and we are making changes for people who don't care about the sport or people who don't understand the sport. But I think it it is important for race. I really think it's important for racing not to wait for people to say that the whip is, is something that ought to be outlawed. Racing is actually seen to be doing something positive on the front foot. The creation of the steering group, which I know that you were part of Nick, um, I think was a positive thing in order to defend ourselves because there's no doubt anybody who is aware of, uh, of of modern day topics of the way the world is moving now must be aware that the, that the whip it would become is already will become more of an, a, a, a talking point for the sport further down the line for the sport to be on the front foot and to try and address it now 
is I see a positive. How they've gone about addressing it and how we've ended up into the situation where it's gone up and down and we've made last minute changes, obviously is something that we can do a lot better. But I think overall, we need to be seen to be doing something positive in terms of uh, how the whip is viewed and how people outside of the sport will look at racing as a whole. And the whip is a significant part of that. Well, the grade one novices hurdle that was run at Newbury last weekend, the Chalo hurdle, yes, produced a very impressive winner in MS Allen, but there was another success story that might have gone a little bit unheralded, and that was trainer Jamie Snowden, Lambourne trainer Jamie Snowden, because he ran two in the race, both of them were big prices, and they both ran incredibly well. You wear it well was second and passing well was fourth at 16 and 33 to one. Well, he's in the grade one mix again with Colonel Harry in the Tolworth hurdle this weekend. That horse might be 16 to one, but judging on last week's exploits jamie i'm thinking we oughtn't to underestimate him how do you rate his chances <laughs> thanks nick um well uh, listen f- first off we you know we were thrilled with those two horses last weekend uh, the the philly where it well ran an absolute blinder to, to finish second only beat four lengths obviously the winner was was mightily impressive but um she she did you know incredibly well to finish as close as she did to him especially as we were we were held up out the back and she was fairly keen early on as well so it's a a, a really good performance and passing well he's he's a, a, a staying chaser for the future and and although he was slightly outpaced at uh, sort of entering into the home straight all he did was stay onto the line and certainly he's he's an exciting horse to look forward to you know next season and beyond um, you wear it well. I mean, there can't be too many better mares novice hurdling than than her. What what sort of have you got in mind for her? Um, so, the, I mean, the, the, the obvious race for her next would be that Sandown Grade Two, the Jane Seymour, um, two and a half miles on Saturday. It was the first time we, we we stepped her up to two and a half. She'd been doing her winning over two, and we stepped. Uh, Pedigree all suggested she wanted to go up and trip and. Uh, and and she did, and she she handled it really well. But um, I think that the obvious step is probably the Jane Seymour, and obviously Envoy LN went from the Jane Seymour onto onto Cheltenham afterwards, which I, I appreciate the novice races a step back to two miles. But on the new course at Cheltenham, it, it is a little bit more of a stamina test than the old course, and and um, perhaps that that might be the route to go with her. Okay, so you think maybe the mayor's novice at Cheltenham still, even though that's a drop back in trip. I think so. She's she she as I said at Newbury, she did travel very strongly in in, in behind. The gap had to really try and switch her off, and um, I, I I I wouldn't see there's an issue coming back to two miles on on a on a stiffer track like the new course, and 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 hopefully she can um, she can she can roll on and and um, yeah, listen, uh, she is a she's a nice mare and, and deserves to take a chance in a race like that. Now, Colonel Harry this weekend made all the running to win very impressively at Sandown on very soft ground uh, back at the beginning of November, the, the meeting that they ended up uh, abandoning. Um, how's he moved forward from that? Well, uh, really well. Um, we were obviously thrilled thrilled with that effort. We ran him the first day at Utoxtra over two and a half miles. He didn't probably quite stay and was beaten by, by a nice horse. As it, as it was, he finished second that day. But we were very keen to drop him back to two miles after that on heavy ground. And, and it, it obviously worked out really well at Sandown in, in November. Um, we we planned really from the moment he crossed the line that day to, to come straight to the Tolworth. And, you know, on figures, he, he does have to improve off the back of that. But um, we know he's obviously handled the, 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 the course and distance very well on deep ground. And uh, as we know, the Tolworth, is usually run on, on on fairly deep ground, and there's a bit of rain due in um, Friday, Friday and Saturday. So I, I think 
you know, the, the, the track and the trip and the ground should all suit him really well. And um, I've been absolutely thrilled with him since since that run. He's he's really blossomed. Um, it was a, obviously a fairly hard run, so we gave him a bit of time to recover from that. And but he but he's blossomed. He looks brilliant in himself, and and we couldn't be happy with him coming into this race. Now, I noticed in yesterday's publication of the Ryanair and Gold Cup entries that you'd given a, an entry in each of those races to your Paddy Power Gold Cup winner. Now, can we just get this straight? How are we pronouncing this horse's name? <laughs> um, we call him Garlaw, um, but I don't know. I, I, it doesn't matter really how anyone pronounces it, as long as he keeps on winning, I don't mind. Well, exactly. Okay, Garlaw, the winner of the Paddy Power Gold Cup, he's got those entries. What made you put him in those races, and what's your thinking? What's your thought process between now and the festival? So we were very keen um, on the back of the Paddy Power. He'd had, obviously, a year off beforehand, and, and, and we, we squeezed two races in fairly quickly, the old run and three weeks later to the Paddy Power. Um, I, I was keen that he had to have a prep run, but it was a very dry autumn, and, and we were struggling to get a run into him. So it was a, a very tight gap between between the old run and the Paddy Power. So I was very keen for him on the back of the Paddy Power to, to not run through December and early January. Um, and, and we were very much gearing up uh, him up for, for the end of Jan. Um, he, the two races at the end of Jan we're, we're going to look at are the two mile five handicap at Ascot on the 21st and the Skybet Chase at Doncaster the week later. So we'll get him ready for, for, for then and then we'll have a, a, a sort of bit of a group chat to decide which way we go. Um, we definitely want to be going up and trip from, from the two four on the old course um, at Cheltenham. He definitely wants to be going up and trip. Um, Obviously, I put him in. I put the entries in for the Gold Cup and the Ryanair. It's probably all pie in the sky, but it's certainly cheaper to enter at this stage than supplement at the later stage. And if he were to go and win at Ascot or <coughs> or Doncaster, and perhaps follow up in February, then it leaves us options going forward that um, you know, if we're not entered, we we wouldn't have. Yeah, because horses can just keep improving. I mean, in your in your heart of hearts, you've trained plenty of good horses now. Is he is he a championship class horse rather than just a high class handicapper? I think so. Um, obviously, he won the Rising Stars at Wincanton as a novice. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, and then um, he, he was third behind Hitman and, and all, all Mankind in the in the Henry VIII. Um, you know, Grade One at Sandown as as a novice. So <clears throat> he is a he is a very talented horse. He's a bigger, stronger horse now than he was then. I think having had that year off, although. It wasn't ideal at the time. It probably has helped us in the longer term. Um, obviously, he's ended up on, on a nice, a nice handicap mark to, to exploit. He's still on a one forty eight, which is lower than his novice uh, uh, than he was as a novice. Um, I'd like to hope that you know there's more scope within that handicap mark um, to then go forward. Now, if he does stay, uh, I can't see why he wouldn't. He obviously won the Paddy Power through stamina. He was outpaced early on in the race and got it a little bit behind. So stamina is looks to be his his forte. So if he does stay, then you know there are options going forward. And uh, listen, I, I'll probably I'll probably put an entry in the in the in the Grand National as well. Um, again, you know it's probably all all pie in the sky. But Noble Yates won it as a novice, and obviously the Grand National has changed in in, in the complexion of the race, and and it is for the younger, improving horse coming forward these days, perhaps than the older horse that, that that's maybe exposed. So um, we've got options going forward, but a lot, a lot depends, obviously, how he runs at, at the end of Jan and and into Feb as to where we end up in in the spring. But um, we've got to have the options there for us. Jamie, thanks so much for talking to me. Many thanks, Nick. 
All right, time for our weekly look at what's happening in Saudi Arabia as we build towards the 2023 Saudi Cup. Martin Kelly is our correspondent as ever. Martin, what's to look forward to uh, this month, January? Lots to look forward to, Nick. Uh, hello there and Happy New Year as well. We're now just, can you believe it, eight weeks out from the Saudi Cup itself and all of the big Saturdays through January have got uh, headline races. This coming weekend, the Prince Khalid Abdullah Cup taking place on turf. Looking ahead to the 14th, a week on Saturday, we've got the King's Cups, which take place on the dirt, the King Faisal Cup and the King Saud Cup. And the big weekend outside of the Saudi Cup meeting takes place on the 28th. We've got the listed custodian of the two holy mosques. That's over the mile and a quarter. £330,000 in prize money there. Uh, last year was won by Making Miracles. Of course, that race a qualifier for the Saudi Cup. We had some big-name jockeys in town last year as well. Mikel Barcelona, Sylvester D'Souza, David Egan and Ryan Moore all rode in that 12 months ago. So it'll be interesting to see who turns up this time around. And tell me a bit more about this Saturday's race, the Prince Khalid Abdullah race. Well, a field of 14 declared. Frankie de Toy rode in it last year, finished in second place. And this was a race that the Jockey Club uh, decided to have in honour of the late Prince Khalid, who died nearly two years ago to the day. Uh, takes place on the turf. Of course, Prince Khalid, a proud Saudi man, born in, uh, born in Taif. He had over 5,000 stakes winners and over 100 individual Group 1 winners to his name. So the club decided to put this race on. Uh, won last year by a former William Haggis inmate. This year, we've got a field of 14. Uh, an international runner as well, coming across from Bahrain, Fausanas, sending out uh, Kada, who, of course, was a winner at Glorious Goodwood a couple of seasons back. Adrian V comes across to ride him. Jim Crowley was due to ride, but uh, due to circumstance, isn't going to be there. But he will be, I think, in town for the, week, the meeting next weekend. Um, but a host of these coming from uh, a race a few weeks ago. That was the Crown Prince Cup, won by Mike Frankel. And of course, James Dole Road. We'll see that horse uh, next weekend as well in the uh, the King's Cups. But six horses coming from that race, including the second, Luganini. And if you remember, Nick, as well, Calculation, formerly owned and bred by the late Queen. That horse was a winner last time out and features among the field of 14. So a strong team of locals and some new names in the field as well. Yeah, two horses making their debuts in the kingdom. Uh, Palavicino, first up, formerly trained by Brian Meehan. And perhaps the most interesting is uh, Magisteral, who's by Frankel. Has only had the five runs, but already rated 99. He was formerly trained by the Gosdens and carried the colours of Bjorn Nielsen as well. So it'd be fascinating to see how he gets on in his debut uh, in Saudi in the Prince Khalidullah Cup on Saturday. As a talking point, we mentioned quite a bit on, on this show, the amount of talent that is that is leaving these shores and quite a bit of it is finding its way in, into uh, Saudi Arabian hands. Um, how many other ex-British runners over the weekend? There's quite a few. Um, most notable, I think, probably Peter the Great, also trained by the Gosdens. He runs in race 10 on Saturday, now owned by Kuwaiti uh, Connections, last in finishing fourth at Goodwood in a listed race. He takes on his former stablemate, Third Kingdom. In race two on Saturday, Power of Beauty, formerly trained by Hugo Palmer, listed place. That horse makes its debut in Saudi. And perhaps the most interesting in that race is a horse called Latahiti, formerly trained by Roger Vary. And that horse won four of his eight starts, was rated 103. He's also making his debut. And on Friday, Soul Stopper, who goes in race 10, formerly trained by Andrew Balding. He was a useful stayer, a dual winner as well. And he's making his debut uh, drop back in distance to the mile and a quarter. That's race 10 on Friday, Soul Stopper.
And obviously, the uh, Dubai International Carnival begins this week at Maidan. I'm guessing, given that this is the, the beginning, really, of the, the major Gulf season, that we might well be seeing some Saudi Cup clues or Saudi Cup night clues in the coming days. Yeah, I think the road to Riyadh will certainly continue through Dubai over the coming weeks. We've got round one of the Al Maktoum Challenge taking place tomorrow. Uh, Bupat Simar, who's taken over the licence from his uncle uh, Satish, he has four runners in round one of the Al Maktoum Challenge. They include Secret Ambition. He was seventh to Emblem Roads in the Saudi Cup last year. Uh, this is only his second run since that. And I just wonder if uh, one of those four from Bupats may feature amongst the entries for the Saudi Cup, entries for which closed yesterday. And we'll have, uh, I hope, more news uh, maybe next week on the horses that have gone forward into the Saudi Cup. Fantastic, Martin. And just to remind everybody where they can watch the, the Saudi Arabian racing if they so wish this week. Yeah, racing there Thursday, Friday and Saturday. The big race, the Prince Carlebill Cup, is the final race on Saturday. And you can get it on youtube.com forward slash equestrian CR live. Martin, thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. Well, as Martin was mentioning there, the International Carnival in Dubai begins in earnest this week. And then horses may be looking at targets all across the Gulf during the course of the of the spring. Tom Dascom who relaunched his training career from Lambourne midway through last season, has a couple of horses that he must be very fond of running at Maidan tomorrow and, and joins me from Dubai now. Um, Tom, first of all, um, how how extensive is the is the Middle Eastern project going to be this spring for you? Uh, well, um, we've brought two horses out here that have um, done well this uh, the last, last summer in England. And... Um, I think they're both still sort of progressive, especially Felix Natalis. And um, we'll see where we go, but they've they've both got a couple of races lined up in Dubai. And uh, we'll make plans after that. Okay, let's just talk about tomorrow then. Felix Natalis, you mentioned, he was the first winner from the from the new base when he won at Newbury um, last year. And he, he followed up later in the season at Foss Last and then won a big sales race at Nace as well. He looks a real trier, this horse. Is there is there improvement in him, do you think? I think that he's improved with every single run, finishing third in a listed race at Doncaster at the end of the season. And he's just... He's one of those horses, you know, we thought we'd put him away for next season. And after two weeks, he was trying to jump over his stable door and, you know, take himself for a gallop. Um, and there are a couple of races that are suitable out here for him. And it just seemed logical, really, um, you know, to keep him. I mean, he just loves his racing. Uh, we're not going to over-race him out here at all. And his pedigree on the damn side suggests that, um, you know, six furlongs shouldn't be his best trip, but he's been winning over it. So we're going to step him up to seven in the Midland Classic Trial. He's already beaten the second favourite um, in one meeting. And he's got the plum drawer in one. Um, so we'll just, we'll see how we go. Um, I know he's going to try as hard as, you know, we all are. So um, I'm very, very happy with him. Uh, there might only be one horse in your yard who tries harder than him. And that's and that's Misty Gray, another one who you could run plenty last year. If you just look at the balance of his form. I'd put it to you that he he improved when you when you moved. Would that be Would that be fair? I, I, look, uh, he he did incredibly well for Mr. Johnson, um, finishing second to Pinatubo at 
uh, Epsom and things like that. And I think that he came to us in Cheshire and refound his form. And I'm not saying improved, but refound his form. And we moved to Lambourne and he... Re, you know, refound his form again um, to a maybe a few pound better, and I just thought that bringing him to a different place, uh, he seems to be buzzing. I mean, he was like a two-year-old yesterday, and um, I think that sometimes these horses, you know, a change of yard. Um, just can reinvigorate them a little bit and uh, I'm very pleased with the way he's going um, you know on his last run um, behind Pogo um, if Pogo was running in this race tomorrow he'd be favourite probably and uh, you know we're, we're there at this sort of level I mean I think we're probably a, a group 3 horse but there isn't a group 3 race to run him in so um yeah, he goes there with a, a strong each-way chance. And, and for you, I know it's still a, a rebuilding process, but for you to be out there competing in good races, in group races, with horses with meaningful chances, um, how how satisfied does that make you feel so relatively soon after relaunching the career? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's great, isn't it? And the, I mean, for me, the most important thing is that the uh, the wonderful owners that have supported me, you know, that have come from Cheshire back to Lambourne with me, um, you know, they've got two horses out here. They've never been here before. They're having a fantastic time. So I think in a small sort of way, we've won already, and we just got to get the horses to perform now. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just wonderful to be here. I mean, I spent three years here with Mike Cock, and, you know, I know my way around, and hopefully the horses will know their way around the track. Tom, best of luck. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you very much, Nick. All the best. All right, thanks to all my guests today. Rishi Passat is still with me and has something for you for today. Rishi. Yes, Nick. Um, given everything that we've spoken about, I actually fancy a horse that's running in the hands and heels apprentice handicap. <laughs> In the in the five thirty at Chelmsford, it's a uh, horse of Daryl Holland's um, called Lil Kyan. Uh, Liam Wright's riding it. He's actually won on this horse a couple of times. So I'm hoping that the hands and heels race will go uh, their way. That's a five thirty at Chelmsford. Good stuff. Um, keep your whips down, Rishi. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time, and we will see you again tomorrow. That was Thursday, January the fifth. Bye bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.